list goes on with different things that Paul specifically said, pray for us. And that was as a missionary. And here again, as he is interacting and ministering to, to these, uh, the, the Hebrews, if you will, uh, he is saying, I want you to pray for us. And the specific is, for we trust, we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. So it was all about that internal part that I want to have in my mind when I put my head on a pillow at night, I want to have a good conscience. And that's something that money can never buy. That's, that's nothing that, that you can, it can earn. It is something that when we have the integrity and we do what we know what we're supposed to be doing and we are trusting that we're going to be having that good conscience and it's because we have lived a, a honest life. In, in front of others, in front of, of the Lord. You know, <clears throat> that, that honesty and in, in right living versus hypocrisy and, and hidden and so forth. I, folks, I think if we are really honest as Christians, um, I think we all know how we can fail. We can fail in our minds, whether it's in our internal part, the fruit of the Spirit, the faith that we don't have when we should, our prayer life, the time and the Word, being a good witness. I mean, the list goes on. If we evaluate our life, somewhere we drop the ball. Somewhere we could have done a better job of perfection, if you will, as Christ would have done. I think if we all really were honest with ourselves as Christians, uh, we, don't, we don't live it as, as best as we possibly uh, could. We could always do more. But I tell you what, if we're looking at Paul here, how could anybody think in his mind, how could you even be thinking you have a bad conscience? How could you ever in your mind be thinking that in all things willing to live and live honestly? How could Paul ever be thinking, I'm not maybe living honestly? And I think what he's doing is really doing a real self-evaluation of where he is at at that time period. And that's what we all have to do. Because as you know, I know, uh, Monday we may have a great day. Man, top of the mountain. Faith that can move the mountain. You know, everything's going great. And then Tuesday, you know, everything changes. And it's this, as we're talking about Sunday mornings, these roller coaster rides that we go through. So the consistency, the good conscience, it's day in and it's day out. And then the next verse he says this, But I beseech you the rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. The thought is, I want you to pray for this, and this is the most important thing, I want to be with you. Um, there is something, and we're going to look at just a couple of verses about this. Um, it is a, a desire to be with Christians. You say, well, that's the simplest thing. Not always. Do you realize that certain times people, when they walk through these doors, are shaking? They're afraid. You say, why would they be afraid? A lot of reasons. Uh, conscience. We talked about the good conscience, and they know, and I haven't been in church for six months. Surely somebody's going to say something to me when I walk in those doors. Oh, where you been? And they're just waiting for somebody to pounce on them, to attack them, and they're afraid that's going to happen. Or maybe they're thinking, oh, somebody's going to ask me to do something, and I don't want to do anything. I just want to come to church. Who knows what is it, why the, the trepidation is there in their minds as they're walking through those doors, but it can be there. And sometimes I think it's because they're not in the will of God. And you become a conviction to them. 
because the joy of the Lord is there in your life, and they don't have that joy. And they're looking at family sitting together, and they just had a big fight and just slept on the couch the night before. And they're walking in, and they're seeing people getting along, and they don't even understand functioning homes or functioning church families or whatever. And everything becomes a conviction for whatever reason in this conscience. And we've seen people that depart, and they don't even miss being with Christians. I was talking to a, uh, a young lady this morning before Sunday school when she was talking. She said, you know, when I miss church, if my kids are sick or whatever, she goes, my week is absolutely, absolutely miserable. And she didn't say, it's because I missed your preaching, preacher. She didn't mention that part. You know what I mean? She didn't mention any individual thing. It was the whole it was the being with you. It's the fellowship. It's the everything. And my point is, I've been around people that are claiming to know Christ as Savior, and they actually th- don't want to be Christians. They'd rather be out on the boat by themselves and secluded. And and I realize some people are, you know, have the, the phobias of you know crowds, and and I just, we'll find a small church. You know, everywhere too. You know, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with getting with believers and being with them and the interaction. And there's something about, is is the writer here is saying, I just want to be with you. Pray that I can be there. I want to see you. Uh, look at the First John, for instance, just back a couple pages in chapter 3. If there's a book that highlights this in the interaction and the love that we have for the brotherhood, it's here in First John. And it's throughout chapter 4, but we're going to chapter 3. And I, I could talk through chapter 4 also about God's love for us, and therefore we love Him, and, and we ought to love each other. And, but chapter 3, verses, verses 14 and 15. It says, We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. Now let's look at that thought. What is God trying to say to us? There is a proof of a transaction that has happened in our life. And the proof is that we love the brethren. You say, what transaction has happened? Death to life. So God is saying the proof that we're alive and no longer dead is that we love the brethren. It is the most obvious evidence is the brotherhood. And this is when the preacher beats himself up after every time I teach a message like this, because there again, I could think about how much more I could be doing. Sometimes I drop the ball and so forth, and, and I do that. And um, I apologize publicly for that. And there are times that I'm not sincere the way I should be, complimenting the way I should be, a lot of things that I drop the ball on. But brethren, I love you. You know what I mean? I mean, this is what families do. And and there is no other place that we'd rather be than with each other and encouraging each other. And But you remember as we're talking on Wednesday nights that the preacher is not omnipresent. You know what I'm saying? 
And that's why God has you here, so that you can do your part of interacting and functioning as the brethren to be able to minister and help and encourage and sometimes, you know, get in each other's face a little bit to try to prod each other. As Hebrews talks about, we, we, we uh, uh, provoke one another to love and to good works, these type of things. And he says, so the evidence that we, what's the, what's the death to life thing? I mean, is it physical? I think not because, you know, I wasn't physically dead. Now I'm physically alive. It obviously has to talk about the eternal death that I had, now the eternal life. So this is actual uh, part of evidence of you and I becoming a believer is that we love Christians. It was a fun transaction as I look back at my life to see who I wanted to be with when I was not a Christian. And then once I became a Christian, how quickly God started to change who I wanted to hang out with, who I wanted to learn from, who I wanted to be around. Now that did not mean I dropped my friends, because I didn't. Matter of fact, they dropped me. Okay, I didn't have to drop them. But one of my closest friends back in Pennsylvania, I called him Thanksgiving Day. We talked for a good 20 minutes, half hour, and um, he's, he's not a believer. Um, he is my friend. And we've witnessed, and you've prayed for him. Um, and so, uh, you know, but he's, he's my friend. But I didn't drop him. I still communicate, and he respects me. Matter of fact, very inquisitive about me. I'm, I'm different now, okay? And so it's really neat to be able to, to interact, and, and, to, uh, and I love him. I mean, uh, he's my friend. He's been there for me many times, and likewise, I need to be there for him. He had the aneurysm in his brain, didn't know if he was going to make it. So we were in Tennessee and vacation, and we ran up to Pennsylvania to see him the day before his surgery to, to pray with him. Walking through the mountains of Pennsylvania, he and I just walking and talking and um, uh, witnessing and him sharing about his thoughts and his faith and what he believes in. And I enjoy talking with him. But there's a difference between that and this. It's, it's, you say, what is it? It's just different because of, of what is in common. And it's that bridge, that, that glue that holds us together is the Spirit of God. And that's what he's trying to teach us in Ephesians 4, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit that Spirit of God is that glue, is just keeping us together. You know what's hilarious? We're not a bit alike. We, I know you all. Okay, not everybody, I mean, but I know you. You want to talk about difference in personalities? We got the loud, we got the quiet. We have those that are in front. We have got those that want to be way in the back. And everything in between. We've got the singers. We've got the teachers. We've got the theologians. We've got people that are just learning. We've got people that are just saved. We've got people here saved longer than I've been alive. I mean, we've got all kinds of differences here. And here we are smiling about it. It's almost like, yeah, we're different. And yet God can bring this together. And there's a unity, that thought of communion, as we fellowship around what Christ has done for us. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So, well, I got a long one now. And look at look at the rest of that verse. 
Um, in verse 14, we'll read. We, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abides in death. In other words, there's no eternal life inside of the God. How can he hate those who Jesus Christ loves and died for? Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So pretty clear that we... Mankind could actually be a murderer in our hearts because we despise and hate somebody that Jesus died for. That thought of hate is just to despise, put them down. Um, you know, uh, you would want ill things to happen to that person. And God says, something's missing. Something's missing when, when that is in the mind of, of, of disliking people, disliking Christians, and it's just like, man, there's something loose. And God says, death, there's, there's death inside of that mind, inside of the heart. Back to, back to the Hebrews 13 now. He says, um, so I beseech you, verse 19, rather to do this, that I may be restored to you quicker, sooner. Now the God of peace, verse 20, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd, that's Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood, that is Jesus Christ's blood, of the everlasting covenant. So let's break this down a little bit. Now the God of peace. Um, we about you know pretty close to Christmas here, and that phrase, peace on earth. Uh, Romans 5 talks about peace. Colossians 1, peace through the blood of the cross. A lot of things that, that talk, God talks about when it comes to peace. But he is the one who has brought that peace. Two verses I want to give to you. The first one is in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. Again, this is another place he uses that phrase. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verse 23. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now notice this. I pray God your whole spirit, most important part in God's mind about you is your spirit. Number two, in the correct order, will be the mind, soul. And then thirdly, last, will be the body. And he is praying that they all three would be preserved, that they will be blameless, unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, he anticipated, we anticipate Jesus Christ's coming to this earth, and that that preservation of us spiritually, the mind, the spirit, soul, and body, would all be there, holy, doing the right thing, living for the Lord, to the very time that Jesus Christ comes. Now, if we're taken out, our part of that all is completed until he comes back. And we come back with him. But if he were to come today, and this is the, the same thought, is that the God who is of peace that would do this work entirely, sanctify entirely uh, every part of our being. So he is in this thought of rapture being called the God of peace. And there is no other time of peace that comes into the heart of the mind of the Christian than the very thought of the rapture. You want to talk about something that takes all of the pressures of everything that's going on and goes, oh, it's okay, Jesus could come today. <laughs> it just changes everything. 
and it gives that peace. So that's one place that he pulls that. Look at John 14.27 with me. John 14.27. Now in the text here, Jesus is teaching us about the Holy Spirit of God and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. You can see that verse 26 where it talks about the one who is the comforter, the Holy Ghost. And then verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Now notice this phrase, not as the world giveth. Now let's think about that phrase first. Is there something that the world is teaching each other about a tranquility in their minds, a peace that can be inside of their minds, the answer is yes. They have a form of peace. They might look at it as how much we have in retirement. That gives me peace. Job security, a nice home, you know, things that that could give in their mind a peace. That I don't have to worry about this. I have good health insurance. Boy, that gives me a peace of mind. A lot of people are like, I have no insurance. I hope nothing happens to the kids, right? I hope nothing happens to me because I, I could lose everything. Well, that's not living in a time of peace. But if we have those things, it gives that. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to give a peace. Not like that. It goes beyond the peace that is inside of the world and that the world might give to you and I. It's not that kind of a peace. Then he goes on and says, not this type of uh, peace give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Of what? You know, we as Christians, we go through at times fears and phobias. We go through things and we sometimes too ha- do have panics and what ifs and what is going to happen. And it is when we stop and we look at the Savior and we look at what is needed versus what we want and we start really bringing everything back down to the proper perspective, we stop and realize it's okay. I pitied this one family I was talking with a long time ago. It was a typical scenario. Um, they had insurance but wasn't very much insurance. And it was in and out of the hospital, multiple surgeries, back to back to back to back for a number of years. It all added up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. I was thinking about this with that poor family with that little eight-month-old that just died in the hospital every day. I can't imagine. But um, they were looking at me and they were saying, "Uh, we don't have it. But we needed the care. Dysfunctional, you know, the, the, the body was there and needed the surgeries and, and the medicines and everything, and, and they needed it. And I um, said, so basically, we're going to lose our house. We're going to lose everything because of this. And they looked at me and they said, but it's okay. We'll downsize. We'll have to rent. We'll try our best to pay everything back, but we can't write a check out for hundreds of thousands of dollars to all of the people that need our money to keep on going. 
It wasn't a thing where they weren't being responsible. This is something that happened. It was a really negative thing. I really, my heart went out to them, and they looked at me, and they said, it's okay. How can you have peace when you think about they have a house, that they have equity in, they have cars, they have everything. They're probably going to lose everything. But you know what? If they have a car to get around, if it's a clunker, it's a clunker. We have a house, has a roof, keeps us warm in the, in the wintertime and cold in the summertime. Guess what? Life's good. We have food on the table. We may not have as much as our neighbors or other relatives, but guess what? It's okay. How can you have a peace when it seems like the world would say, oh, the rug has just been swept out. Where's your God? Why isn't he giving you a check for hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for all of that? And God says, let me just give you a peace in your circumstance. What the Monroes are going to go through, we have no idea. But guess what? God's going to give you a peace. You say, how does that happen? I don't know. It's just God does something inside of us that takes the stress, that takes the phobias, and he gets us through some of the most horrible things that many in this world would absolutely lose it if they were going through. And it is in those darkest hours when we become the greatest light. And it's because the one who is our peace, God who is our peace, gives us that peace because he is in us. His Holy Spirit is inside of us. And because of the comforter being there, Christ could say, this is a peace. Not that the world is ever going to be able to give, but I'm going to give it to you, and so don't be afraid. Let not your hearts be afraid. It's interesting to tie it together with another place in this same book, in chapter 14 of John. He says it this way, let not your hearts be troubled, right? You believe in God, believe also in me, because in my Father's house are many mansions, and we're not so I told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now listen, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to what? Come again. There's your rapture again. I'm going to come and take you to where I am, there you may be also. Giving peace. All of this is tied together. The peace that God wants to give. This who is our, The God who is our peace, uh, also in Hebrews uh, 13, I'm back there to verse 20 again. This one that he ties as the God of peace, ties it together with the gospel, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who brought Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. And then, because of the death and the resurrection, Jesus Christ has become our great shepherd. I'm running out of time. So John chapter 10 is where, where uh, Christ explains to himself one of the great I am's, and down the road we're going to talk about this on Sunday mornings, that Jesus Christ is the shepherd. And then you couple that with 1 Peter chapter 5, talks about when our shepherd shall appear, then he's going to be coming and giving a reward uh, for us. And so he is the great shepherd of the sheep, and that through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now there we have to pause and look at some verses. Look back with me and rehearse with me Hebrews chapter 9. If you please turn back there. We've got to examine again quickly this matter of the covenant that God has made. And this covenant, as he says here, is through Jesus Christ. It is through the blood. In chapter 9, look at verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal 
redemption for us. That's why he went into the Holy of Holies for you and I to pay the price, the redemption for our sin that we, uh, through Jesus Christ, who died one time for all, would be saved. Verse 13, for if the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctify through the puring of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, notice this, without spot, there is our God who is pure, who died on the cross. He then is able to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He purges to purify so that we can serve, so we can act. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, the Old Testament that is, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, that's an agreement between two, that's agreement between God and man, the Old Testament, the law, the New Testament, grace through Jesus Christ, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. That's why Jesus Christ is the one who had to die so that the New Testament would be able to come into force and that's what he says in verse 17, for a testament is of force after men are dead. So after Jesus died, the New Testament came into being. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. So that was the blood of bulls and goats. The New Testament was the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why it is something that through the eternal spirit of God had happened in God, through God, for God, to be able to sanctify you and I through the precious blood of Christ. Fascinating what our God has done. And what this does, back to Hebrews 13, is this. It makes you and I perfect in every good work to do His will. Now let me pause on this for a moment. It's a neat word, the word uh, to make you perfect, has to do with restoration. Uh, one of my deacons at the, my first church, uh, incredible, incredible when it came to, to woodwork. Um, uh, Brother Harold Franger would really appreciate this guy's work. Uh, he worked for a place called Pennsylvania House, high-end uh, furniture at that time, and his job was this. If the furniture was shipped out, and let's say this piece right here of this uh, was snapped off, it was his job to restore it. And literally, it was all busted up. And you say, well, that's impossible. Not with this guy. And this is what he headed up there, is he would take that, and literally, by the time he was done, this whole piece that was broken off, you say, but it's different grain and everything. Uh-uh, not when it was done. You couldn't even see the crack. You couldn't see any kind of blemish whatsoever. He restored it back. Now, of course, they couldn't sell it at full price, so they, were, they became the seconds. But people were like, I can buy that for 100 bucks versus this one, $300. You can't even see the difference. I'll take the one for 100 And they sold the stuff constantly. He gave us some beautiful furniture that, that he had restored. And folks, that's what God has done with you and I. We've been all busted up because of sin. 
And what our God is able to do is able to take that which was busted up and marred by sin, and he's able to bring it back and to restore it to, to, to the place that it once was before, and that's what God was able to do. Honestly, he undid what Satan did to Adam and Eve. Through Genesis 3, he, God, was able to repair that. Amazing. Now, we haven't experienced the full repair yet. It's not until we get into heaven that we fully understand the repair. But right now what he has done is repaired us to work. Most people would not want that table that half of it's busted off. You wouldn't want to use that. But once it's restored, now it's able to be used. And that's what God restored you and I for, is to be able to work to do the very will of God for us in our lives. The will of God is simple. Here it is. The Word of God. This is God's will for every one of us. Now, we understand that it's hard for us to, when you get into the will of God, to say, you know, well, does God want me to get this new job next week? Let's find that in the book of Galatians. You know, should I marry this guy or this guy? Let's find that in the book of Luke. It's just not going to happen. You can't find those verses. But I think if we are fulfilling the obvious will of God for us, that he's going to lead us in his plan that he has individually for us in our lives. So our attention is to work the will of God that he has for us in the word of God in our lives, and God's going to take care of the plan. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the plans. God is going to bring all those things that we may be concerned and worried about. He's going to bring it all there. We just need to be faithful in the obvious things that God wants us to do. Be thankful. Be in prayer. Be in the Word. Be a good witness. Be that light. The list goes on. And God's going to say, let me direct your path now. You just trust in me. Don't lean on yourself. You just keep acknowledging me. I'm going to direct your paths. It's going to be okay. And then that peace that God wants to give, the God of peace, is going to give you peace. Right inside of your heart and your mind. You're going to know because you've prayed, you've looked at it, and, and, uh, and he's, he's going to be there to take care of those things. So he wants you to do the work of his will and those things that are well-pleasing in his sight. But we don't do it on our own. And this is that quick reminder that everything you and I do for God is done through the strength and the power that he gives us. We are nothing in and of ourselves. That's why this, that phrase, through Jesus Christ. In other words, the only way we can do the will of God, the only way we can be perfect, the only way we can do anything is because God did the sanctifying. He cleansed us and he changes the heart and minds. He shows us his word. And if we, we are pliable and we allow him to work inside of us and the spirit of God working, it's amazing what God is able to do through you and I. It's just a bunch of mud and dirt put together. And God's able to use us in a great way. To whom be glory forever and ever. And that's why we're here. To do His will. To work for Him. Because we can do all things through Christ. Because He strengthens us. I was going through um, the Old Testament. And uh, 
the, the tabernacle, as you know, is, is a fascinating thing for me. And you would think, boy, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this stuff all together? And how are we going to get all these materials? And once the materials are here, who's going to build it? Who's able to take this beautiful lamp stand and made and, and beaten and the holes have to be just right and shaped just the right way and has to hold the oil and all these things. Who, who's going to build it? God says, oh, by the way, so-and-so is going to build this stuff for you. You say, how did that happen? Because God had him here at the right place, the right time, just the right time, folks, to be there to do the job. It amazes me how God has a church like ours go through the, if you can use the word revolving door of people that come, and God moves them on to someplace else, and then God raises up somebody else to step into those shoes and to do the exact same ministry, and the work of God doesn't stop. It's amazing. And there are times that God brings somebody in for a specific time and reason, and it's fun for me to watch. There was this one family, they started coming in, and you could see the, the gifts and the things that they were desiring in their heart to do. They were kind of there in limbo. They were wanting to get involved, but the places were already kind of filled. And then sure enough, God says, well, it's time for move you guys, because we've got to you know, move you to another area. So God moves them, and then these people are like, oh, we can do that. And they step right in and do it. And it's happened over and over and over again. This is God's work, folks. There is the only way of saying it. This is all God. It's, this church is, if you will, if I can use Dennis's term from Sunday school, a church is miraculous. <laughs> it goes beyond what naturally should be happening. This place should never exist. But because of God working through you, to do His will. It is. It's an amazing thing. And what we want to be able to do as a church is say the same thing that, that is closed here. To whom be glory forever and ever. Yeah, we can see that phrase and we can say, yep, I want to glorify God. And he says there in Corinthians, he said, whether therefore ye eat or drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That our works, our labors, what we do, what we don't do, we, we have God in our mind. And we want Him to be honored and glorified in our lives. And the thing is, this glorifying God is not for the moment. It's not because uh, I feel God did me good this time. You know, he gave me something I wanted. No, God is good all the time. And God is to be glorified all the time, through the ups, through the downs, to whom be glory forever and ever. And that phrase, amen, means it's a certainty. I agree. It's an absolute truth. And that's why we as Christians will put that in our prayers at times, that we want to glorify God. That's one of our prayers Sunday mornings when my wife and I pray for the services and everything that's going on. We pray for the musicians and the choir and everybody that's involved. And our prayer is that, Lord, you will be glorified 
I love the song that Mark chose for the from uh, the service this morning. Uh, we want to glorify His name, and it goes through the Trinity: Father and Jesus and the Spirit of God, and that's what we're here for. Matter of fact, if I could open up the church service, Sunday morning service, with that song all the time. It's a worshipful, it's like it gives us that reminder of why we're here, is to glorify Him. And don't forget that as a Christian this week. Stop and think, Lord, I want to glorify You and honor You, whether it is through music, whether it is my job, whether it is at work as a husband, as a wife, as a child, you know, in school, wherever, that your life should be focusing in on, am I glorifying my God in my life? Now, Father, we've looked at a lot of verses. We've seen a lot of concepts. And, Lord, your book, your word that you have given us, is it's an amazing thing. It just brings us back to perspective of what we are to, here for. And, Lord, we do want you to be glorified in and through this church. So, Lord, I pray that you will bless and that your hand will be upon us, that we fulfill much of what we talked about tonight, the love for the brotherhood, that we would have that good conscience, that we'd understand that you are our peace, that we have a great shepherd who has established a beautiful, everlasting covenant through his blood, and that he has made us perfect. Lord, you've repaired us. You've restored us. We were busted up, and now we're, we're healed. And we thank you for your work. So, Lord, help us to work for you now. We'll glorify you in our lives. Bless this time. Use it for your glory. In this invitation, Lord, it is yours. In Jesus' name, amen.